when I saw the hair and the glasses, I had to do that. I couldn't pass up on that. It's a hug fest. Now, that song was originally titled, Everything There is a Season. And uh, who actually wrote the song? Anybody I wanted to read this letter from Pete Seeger, Melissa and Davy McVicker. And then, of course, the birds. Uh, as you know, uh, they're one it. of our missionaries. Uh, you know it is Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, and it raced to number one on the Billboard charts uh, for several weeks. And it's actually a paraphrase, as most of you know, from the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I'd like to read this to you. It's from Ecclesiastes 3, and it says this. For everything there's a season. It won't be up on the screen, so just listen along. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There is a, a recent book uh, titled Managing Transitions, Making the Most of Change, and it maps out how businesses have to manage different transitions, such as layoffs, you know, restructuring, change of management, whatever, in order to succeed. Certainly, we understand the need to do that in business, but this also is necessary when it comes to real life. So... The same is true for our personal lives. Now, this turn, turn, turn is really a commentary, Ecclesiastes, that passage, is a commentary on the transitions that we have to make in life. And if you think about it, there are transitions that all of us have to go through. I mean, not too long ago, Janet and I had to transition, you know, from having the kids in the house to having an empty nest. You know, I was a a little concerned about it, and then I remembered, wait, you know, lower grocery bills, more time with my bride, what's the loss here? I'm... Um, we're going to enjoy this. But we, we move, as it says in, in Ecclesiastes, we move from a time of grieving, for instance, to a time of, of having laughter. And unless you allow yourself to experience those transitions, you're going to stay stuck, and it's going to be to your own detriment. And, and many people stay stuck in certain stages and don't know how to, how to manage those trans, transitions. Now, We often speak of this, for instance, uh, we talk about having a new beginning, getting a fresh start, or having a new chapter in our lives, and that's an indicator of these transitions that we need to make. And each transition requires a a new way of thinking, right? A a new way of maybe uh, doing things, and it's not always easy. Uh, For instance, one rather innocuous transition now is uh, moving from summer to the transition of school now starting, right? I mean, you see all kinds of pictures now up on Facebook of Johnny's first day of school, you know, how cute he looks, and behind the camera are the parents being gleeful about their newfound freedom now that the kids are gone from the house. Now, many of you are are teachers and and, and summer students, and we certainly enjoy uh, having the, the time off during summer and it, I know it's difficult for me to transition now and school starts. We've got to start teaching next week. You know, it's hard to kind of get your mind around that. But then once you get with the students and start engaging, um, it's, a, it's a lot easier. 
But there's, a, there's another transition for Christians, particularly in our culture now that I think is difficult. I, w- I just want to talk today about different transitions that is a challenge for us, all right? And this one, I think, you can understand by just looking at social media, uh, listening to conversations with friends, looking at the polls, understanding the anxiety that is in our country is at an all-time high. I mean, people are concerned about the state of our nation. And this transition I call is from a Judeo-Christian country to a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture. Now, listen, I can only speak from my own perspective here. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm not here to get all political on you. I certainly think that what we have before us with our two-party system are the worst two candidates I can ever remember in my adult life. I mean... I wasn't wanting applause, but kind of, kind of sad. <laughs> but, but, but we look at the enormous problems in our country, and we wonder how in the world did this sea change happen? I mean, what happened? And and some have concluded that as a result, what we need to do as Christians in America, is is take America back to make all of our institutions Christian, to, to make all the pagans start acting like Christians. And I say we can't allow this transition to come to fruition. We need to go back. And instead of accepting reality, these folks, I think, in my opinion, live in a kind of denial, kind of like refusing to admit that you're getting old, you know, don't want to talk about it. You meet people like that. It's like, dude, all right, you're 65. Just, all right, accept it. It's okay, all right? But by, by, by failing to adjust, we create more problems, right? What happens is the anxiety increases, and even the depression can increase, Because we're not facing reality, we're not letting the Lord enter into the situation as it really is. So how do we manage this transition as a country? Uh, Some say we need to take America back. On the other side, you have people who basically say, well, there is no hope. I mean, we're going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what all is going to happen. I'm going to start loading stuff up in my basement, and we live in fear, Right? Now, just so you know, I don't subscribe to either. I don't subscribe to losing hope, and I don't subscribe to trying to take America back and change the the culture. I mean, whether we like it or not, and most of us don't, Christians in America have to manage this transition that our country has changed, and it is distinctly a post-Christian culture, and all you got to do is stand in a classroom and begin engaging students to understand what it is I'm talking about. I think we need to have a mindset that is similar to what Isaiah wrote about. Listen to this prophet who said, to whom then will you liken God? 
or what likeness compares with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. And he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heaven like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes, you might insert in there, presidents, kings, to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stern um, stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What were the conditions that were taking place in Israel when Isaiah wrote this? The northern kingdom of Israel had been carried off into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah was awash in idolatry and evil. I mean, Assyria had conquered the land and was ruling, soon to be taken over by the Babylonians. I mean, the the people of Israel were concerned about their lot in life. How could God's people survive, let alone experience the promises that God had given to the nation of Israel? And then we have to ask the question, must God's people, the the, the righteous, also suffer along with a nation who is for all practical purposes pagan? I mean, as you can understand, there is great anxiety with God's people. Now listen, America has never been a theocracy, and I'm not proposing that they should be. It's not like the nation of Israel. But I think there are some parallels here from this passage in how we can and should view a sovereign God over the affairs of every king, of every nation. Succinctly stated, my hope is not in a president that coincides, you know, with my ideals. My hope is not in taking America back. Would I like to see things change? Well, sure. But my ultimate hope is not in that. And my hope is not in moving to Costa Rica either because of all this. My hope is in the hands of a sovereign God who holds the nations, the kings, the presidents in his hands just like as a little grasshopper. He is over every nation, every king, every leader. He is sovereign over the earth. And I say with Moses, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. 
By faith, he left Egypt, check this out, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see, Moses understood that God was sovereign on earth and he's also sovereign in eternity. And may God give us such a perspective. Managing the transition of our country is really about accepting the notion that God is sovereign and allowing him to settle our anxiety. And let's admit, we've got a lot of anxiety, right? I mean, it's a perspective that realizes we really do have a place in this world in the kingdom of God. We are in his hands. I mean, he will not only care for us on earth, but also for our future in eternity. It's true for us. It was true for Israel. So let's go from this macro level of a nation, make a change to kind of a more personal level. Here's another transition we all need to manage. We have to manage the transition from childhood to adulthood, right? From childhood to adulthood. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, that's the way it should be, (laughs) but not the way it always is. A needed transition is for us to mature as people. And this is true not just for Christians, but for everybody. We have to mature as people and not have attitudes or behaviors or actions or reasoning that are childish. And note that this is at the end of a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that is about love, and love is what? Love is about being there for others. Love is about sacrificing for others, whereas a child is usually self-absorbed, concerned about self, taking a fit if things don't turn out his or her way. That's usually what a child does because they're thinking about themselves. And frankly, some adults never grow out of that stage. And so what they do is they continue to be just as demanding in their adult years. Sometimes the only thing missing between an infant and an adult is the diaper. But actually, they still continue to make crap for others to have to clean up as an adult. Yeah, that'll probably be the only line you remember from this sermon. (laughs) The mature adult, listen, doesn't pout or demand or throw a hissy fit when they don't get their way. They've learned to manage their disappointment and, and, and they understand that everyone does not have to bend towards their desires. There's actually a sickness that psychologists have coined called gyroscophobia. It's the fear of growing up. I'm not making this up. Gyroscophobia. Adult responsibilities are feared, and people feel like they have to continue to embrace childhood. <laughs> it really begs the question what are some attitudes? 
thinking, reasoning, behaviors that are causing me to be stuck in childhood with immaturity. Listen, teenagers who are, who are smart understand that the house that they live in is a proving ground for them to live under authority. It's the way God has designed it. So smart teens understand to live under that and know that that's going to benefit them as they get out in the, in the real world and have to work in a, in, in a school, in a job, uh, with, uh, with civil authorities, that there are authorities that they have to bend towards. It's the way the world works. I mean, instead of fighting it, be glad that God is training you now to serve, to mature, and not be a jeroscophobic. Turn to the person next to you and say, pray that I won't be a jeroscophobic, all right? <laughs> if you can pronounce it, that's impressive. By the way, parents... Parents have to manage this as well for their children. They have to help transition children from parenting a child to coaching an adult. I mean, when parents have an eye to not treat their 14-year-old like they're three and not to treat their 19-year-old like they're 12, they are well on their way to managing this transition. Now, the same transition has to take place in our spiritual lives. From a spiritual baby to a mature follower of Christ. Consider these passages on maturity. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants and evil, but in your thinking, be mature. The deal was is that people were using the spiritual gift of tongues without an interpreter and just kind of showing off, if you will. And Paul said, hey, listen, gifts are for the purpose of the body. Gifts are for others to mature and be edified. And if you're using your gift just for yourself and not the body, that's immature. Uh, a gift is for the edification of the body. And a spiritually mature person sees himself as an instrument, a way for others to grow and mature. Whereas a spiritually immature person, you know what they do? They view the church as merely an instrument for personal recognition and preference. And then, if that doesn't work, they'll just move on to the next one. I mean, there is a low threshold in our society, is there not, for any kind of issue that bumps up against our wishes in this consumeristic society. I mean, we have it at home, we have it at church. If I don't, you know, have my immediate needs met by this spouse, I'm just going to go find me another one, right? And the same is true even in a church. Now, let, let me just cast it another way. What if we took all these frustrations, all these problems, all these issues, and what if we created another paradigm that instead of, of using these things as a way to get our immediate needs to be met, what if we allowed God to use these situations for maturity, to actually cause us to grow in the midst of that? I mean, really, do we ever mature when we get everything we want? 
and he gave some as apostles. Here's, here's a great passage, again, with, about maturity, Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the, te- the, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, spiritual maturity is worked out in here in a community, a Christian community, within the context of spiritual leaders. It is not just a personal journey. Again, I've hardly ever matured when I've gotten everything I've wanted. And and in the timing that I preferred as well. Maturity happens alongside with other people that we love. We're working out the disappointments. Things did not work out the way I wanted. That's how maturity takes place. I was sharing a story in in the first service. I can remember when we were over. How many of you were going here when we were over on Cherry Street? Okay, good, good many of you. I can't remember the exact years, but we tried to start a college ministry because we were near the campus there, uh, just about a, a mile from, um, from Glenstone, east of Glenstone. In that college ministry, we had two people, two girls. Uh, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie was then Johnson, but now Bonnie Otwell was one of those. And I can remember, I was the college-age teacher, and you had to climb up these stairs to get to, in, into this building where this college-age class, and it was like... Uh, it was like a closet we met in, and sometimes Bonnie would be the only person there, okay? And, 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 and we're having Sunday school, okay? I don't know why she still came or the other person that was coming, why they did that. I mean, I was the program. The program really sucked, all right? <laughs> that, was, that, that was it. What happened over time is that God brought another couple uh, started coming to church, and many of you remember John and Julie. They started getting excited about uh, the church. They started bringing their friends. It was like, it just seemed like it, within a matter of months, we had 40 college students at our house every Sunday night having supper. It was just like like that. And it was because a couple kids got really excited about it. Now, of course, for the two that were coming, <laughs> when it was back what, the way it was before, they were so excited to see that. But w- what I'm saying is, If they wouldn't have stayed around, they wouldn't have enjoyed that. But also, God worked in them in the midst of that. Maturity happens alongside other people as we love one another in the disappointments. We read this in Hebrews, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice that maturity is marked by our engagement with the word of God, an application of the word to our daily life, our participation in the body of Christ as teachers. And by the way, I don't think he means necessarily teachers in an official capacity or, or teachers standing up in front of a class Rather, I think what he means by teaching is to be engaged with others, sharing insights, encouraging others in our relationships, seeing the work of the body as being, as, as being central using the, the, the word of God. In other words, being, being a participant and a giver, not just a spectator and consumer, and particularly on the spiritual level, communicating the word of God 
using the word of God, sharing, encouraging others. That's how you get beyond that infant stage where you, you steer the conversation towards things that are substantive. And listen, there are a lot of people that just aren't interested in that. They're just not all in. They're going to stay in the infant stage. And church just becomes kind of this consumer thing. In fact, it's a, listen, it's kind of in vogue now to diss the church, to talk about all kinds of spiritual activity without any accountability, any participation, as if, you know, people have reached some ultimate level of spirituality without church, without a Christian community. The idea is that the Christian life is a private enterprise. Well, listen, that idea is completely foreign to the biblical record. It's kind of like saying, you know what? I believe I'm a great husband, but I'm not married. How does that work? Uh, Guess what? It doesn't. And that's the point. Spiritual maturity is impossible without community, without accountability, without spiritual instruction, without the covenant relationships in the body of Christ. Now, I suppose God can somehow make up for it if somebody lives in some faraway land, there's no church. I'll let God take care of that. But when we have opportunity to be in a church and we refuse to do that, all the excuses don't matter. And you know what? Nothing is exactly like we like it, including marriage, including our country, including the clothes we wear, the body we have, the spouse we're with, the church. Nothing is exactly like we want it, correct? So how do we live with that? That's the point. Janet and I had some dear friends over this past week for dinner. And the husband was also a pastor. And he, like me, has been at the same church for a long time. We now measure it in decades, not years, okay? Uh, There are many war stories, and some were shared. And there are more stories about how God has worked and the the victories we've seen. And it was just a great time of fellowship. And and we talked about, you know, there's been a time or two where, you know, you just felt like giving up the ghost, where... It's bound to happen, and of course, it's nothing new. Anybody who has a job understands this, that there are times where you think, maybe it could be better if I did this or that, and the fellowship was just deep. It was, it was substantive, but there was something that, as they left, Janet and I, I think, realized that God was teaching us, and I, I think it applies to all of us here, and you don't have to be in ministry to know this, and this is why I'm making the point. In order for for God to really use us and to, and, to, and to work in us with this maturity, there has to be staying power. There has to be endurance. You see, we could have chosen to skip out on the marriage. And, you know, listen, to be honest, 36 years, there were a couple times where it's like, eh, what we would have missed if we'd have done that? You could choose to skip out on the church. And again, I'm not saying there aren't times, particularly for a church, not necessarily in marriage, but particularly in a church where, you know, it's a good and godly thing. So I'm not saying that can't happen. But when you're running from things, when you're refusing to deal with things, and when you basically are not getting immediate needs met, and you are concluding then that that means 
I have to hightail it out of here. How does that work in any other part of life? It doesn't. And that's how we get ourselves in trouble. We will not get our immediate needs met in just about any situation at the timing that we want. And if we think we do, we miss a much greater lesson of what God is doing in terms of love, community, depth, character. Listen, the payoff just isn't worth it. It's the same story for the single person who wants to get married. But they're thinking, hey, I've got immediate needs. I don't have to spell it out. So let me just do that now and marriage can come later. But there's always a price to pay for that, always. At the top of the list, maturity, endurance. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants, we commend ourselves in every way, check this out, by great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, calamities. That means not only did things not work out the way I wanted, <laughs> there is opposition. Things are really hard. And yet he's talking about endurance. And Jesus even put it more pointedly in Luke when he said, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Isn't that great? So by God's grace, may we learn to manage all these different transitions and know that we are serving a compassionate, sovereign God. Let's pray.